All right, I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. As you turn there, I wonder if you've ever had an experience like this. A couple weeks ago, I went to the mailbox, which is something our family doesn't do as often as we're supposed to. So I got there, I opened the door, it was full, it's always full. Uh, I pried out the stack of ads and trash, sat down in my truck and just started flipping through. You know, you do that scan, is there anything here that's important? And one envelope stood out, addressed to me from the IRS, it's always fun, right? An unexpected letter from the IRS. So, of course, I, I, I start opening it, and my mind starts racing, thinking, what could this be? And I have no reason to think it's negative, but I wasn't expecting communication from me either. Is it an audit announcement? Is it a tax bill? So I open it up, and to my surprise, it was a check. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but it was just a check, no explanation. So for probably two minutes, I'm just sitting there, like, reading every little detail that I could find, which wasn't much, trying to decipher why would the government send me money. It's not normal. And the last thing I want to do is to take something now that I'll have to give back later. Long story short, we received another letter several days later that said we were entitled to an additional refund back in 2020. Some benefit we didn't know about, and so now they were catching up. A happy ending. It wasn't life-changing money, but a nice surprise. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this, first of all, because you should always check your mail, right? It's usually going to be bills. Sometimes you might get a surprise. Here's the real reason for the story. I wonder if you've had this experience of getting something in the mail or maybe an email and reading it and being surprised by good news, something you didn't expect. Maybe in your case, something that seems too good to be true. And so you read it and then you read it again. You check the name, was this for me? Going over it two or three times to make sure you understand. Maybe you've gotten a letter or an email that for you wasn't just a nice little check, but something that changed a lot. Maybe that was your your experience with a college acceptance letter. Right, you get it? It says you're accepted. And you read it again. Did I read it right? Or maybe an email telling you you got an interview for a job. Sometimes that wording's tricky, right? Was I, did I get it or did I not get it? Let's read it again. This is good news. Maybe a message from your boss telling you about a promotion or a special project you've been invited to. We probably all had the experience of learning something, reading something that leaves us a little bit stunned, thinking, I need to read that again. I want to make sure that's true. This morning, as we come to Romans 5, we're coming to a passage that I think should give us that kind of feeling over and over again. It's news that should leave us thinking, this is too good to be true. It's better than an unexpected check. It's better than a college acceptance letter. Better than a promotion. Better than any good news you could receive. What we have in Romans 5 is a list 
of some of the benefits that are ours as a result of faith in Christ. For those who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, Paul's telling us in this passage about some of the things that are now realities for us. So here's my hope this morning. We're going to a familiar passage that some of you could even possibly quote. And yet, my hope is that as we look at it afresh this morning, you would get that, I can't believe this is true kind of feeling. That we would be maybe stunned, overwhelmed again at the work of Christ. We're in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to look at the first 11 verses. So I hope you have your Bible open that you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this morning we have the joy of witnessing and celebrating a baptism. So I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to spend some time remembering. Remembering what it means for us to be in Christ. Remembering everything that comes to us as a result of our union with him. Today as we see Philip baptized, we're acknowledging spiritual realities. It's not just getting wet. We're saying that there are things that are now true of him because of Christ. And if you're here and you're in Christ, these are things that are true of you also. It's a reminder that something has changed. It's something we have to recognize. The Bible tells us that we, we come into this life not in right standing with God. This is the theme of the first few chapters of Romans. Here's your homework, because we're jumping into chapter 5. I'm, I'm not serving you well. Read the first 
two and a half chapters of Romans, and Paul's building this argument that none of us, none of us come into this life in right standing with God. We all come in as sinners, enemies of his. But then there's a transition in the middle of chapter 3 where we're told that God sent his son so that through him we could be justified. It's this word we use, this theological church word, Bible word, justification. The Bible says that we can be be justified, so we can go from being sinners and enemies to being in right standing with God. That word justification, it's, it's a legal term. It's a judicial act. Think about a courtroom. It's this act in which God declares a sinner to be forgiven, to be pardoned. And not because of anything the sinner did, but because of the work of Christ. We talk about the righteousness of Christ. Christ lived a perfect life. We can't. And yet the righteousness, the the work of Christ is credited to our account through this work of justification. So chapters one, two and a half tell us our position without Christ. Chapters three and a half to four tell us what we have because of Christ. And now we get to chapter five and he says this, therefore, while you were sinners, then you were justified. Therefore, because you have been justified by faith, and now he's going to tell us what is ours, what we receive because of that justification. Does that make sense? We're jumping in. But what I want us to consider this morning is, what is true of us if we are in Christ? As Philip's baptized this morning, what is he professing is now true of him? There's seven things which may sound scary. And I didn't know if it was going to work when I started preparing the sermon, but I think we're going to be able to get through seven in our normal time. We'll see. Seven results of our justification. Look at verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so think about me sitting in my truck, opening up this letter. I'm looking for words. Um, I find something. Okay, here's what it says. And you just kind of read it over and over. Here's the first three words that I want you to see in your Bible and just kind of read over and over. Peace with God. If you are in Christ through faith, you have peace with God. Now, when you think of peace, you may think of, it's maybe natural to think of an inner peace, an internal peace. I'm at peace. I I feel peaceful. And the Bible does talk about the peace of God that passes all understanding, this experienced peace. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is being at peace with God. He's pointing us back to what I just told you, this reality that we were born not as friends of God, but as enemies of God. Born as those who, apart from Christ, will experience the eternal wrath of God. We were born as rebels and adversaries. And yet, here's what Paul tells us. 
if we place our faith in the finished work of Christ, repenting of our sins and trusting in him, we are declared justified. And if that's true of you, that means you are now at peace with God. Once an enemy, but no longer an enemy. Once an adversary, but no longer an adversary. The warfare is over. You have peace. Have you ever been in a relationship that wasn't peaceful? And then you, you come to that point of peace being established. You know how sweet that is? Whatever that situation was for you, exponentially more. You were an enemy of God, and yet now, through Christ, you have been brought into peace with him. In spite of all your sin, all your failure, all the things that you've done for which you deserve the wrath of God, it's cared for through Christ. And this can be true of you. Peace with God. How? Well, it's wrapped up in this concept that he talks about reconciliation. It's a word we know, right? To be reconciled to someone. And yet, we're told that we needed something to happen to reconcile us to God. He talks about it down in verse 10. He says, for while we were enemies, while we were enemies, not after we stopped being enemies, but while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We get a variety of terms here, here, right? Justification made right with God. Reconciliation, we're reconciled to God. Because of that justification and because of that reconciliation, we now have peace with God. What do you think about this in terms of baptism? What are we celebrating? I, I, I said in the email I sent to you, I think I said last, we're celebrating a baptism. Why would we use the word celebrating for this? It's because we believe that a sinner who deserved the wrath of God has been reconciled to God and is now at peace with God. Celebration is an understatement of the way we should feel when we recognize that someone has come into this position. And that's just the first thing. There's more. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we were enemies, rebels, adversaries. But now we're at peace with God and we've been given access into this, he says, this grace in which we stand. And I think the particular grace he's talking about here is that grace of justification. You've been given access into this position of justification. You've been given access into this right standing with God. You have obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand. You're in this position. You've been welcomed in. And I was trying to think of a good comparison for this. I couldn't think of anything specific. You can tell me afterwards what it should have been. But I think we all know what it's like to be told, you don't have access here, right? 
you, you, you can't come in. And we all know that there are places that we don't deserve access to. None of us, friends, deserve access into this position of right standing with God. Not one of us. And yet, through faith in Christ, he tells us we have obtained access into this grace. And I think there's a close connection as we think about I have access to right standing with God. What comes with that is this idea of communion or fellowship with God. In fact, Paul uses this idea of access two other times, and both other times it's related to, to prayer or coming into the presence of God. For example, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 17, he says, And Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I think this is part of what it means to stand in grace. We have this communion, this fellowship with the Father. We were strangers and aliens. Now, citizens and saints, members of the household of the family of God. It's too good to be true because we know what we deserve. And yet now we find ourselves standing in this grace, welcomed into right standing with God, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this is what he says we can do. He says, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Love this passage, and there's a lot there to unpack. This idea of confident entrance, drawing near to God, this is the grace in which you stand if you are in Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Think again to where we started. What it's like to read something unexpected and wonderful. This is that kind of thing. It should be. Christian, you have peace with God. You stand in grace. You have fellowship with God. And then third, we're told this. We have the hope of the glory of God. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul, is, he's pointing us forward. Right now we have peace with God. Right now we stand in grace. And one day we will see the glory of God. It's our hope today that then we will see it. Right? Know this, friend. If you're in Christ, one day you will see God. Now, let's be clear about this. One day everybody will see God. 
But for those who see God, who have not been forgiven of their sins, this will be a dreadful day. It will be the day when they are sent forever into the judgment of God. But for those who have been justified, for those who have been reconciled, for those who are at peace with God, this is our hope. We will experience the glory of God. It's not fantasy. It's not fiction. You, pick on Philip, who's professing his faith in Christ, will see the glory of God. And some of you think, that's cool. But my life is really hard right now. And no doubt you have significant struggles, challenges looming. But can I encourage you to read these words and know that this is true hope? you will see the glory of God. There will be a day when all of this is gone. And we will stand in the presence of God Almighty. And for those who are in Christ, it won't be a dreadful day. It will be the greatest day. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul knew suffering. He did. This present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And I think wrapped up in that is this recognition, this realization that when we see glory, we are glorified. Maybe you know what I mean. On your notes, I said it this way, I think. Not only do we have the hope of glory seen, we have the hope of glory received. Because even though we are justified, we still live in imperfect bodies. We still have temptations. We still live in a a sin-cursed world, but one day we will see glory and be glorified. Here's how John says it. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now you really are if you're in Christ. And yet what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Whatever the struggle is for you today in the flesh, Know this, a day is coming when you will see him and all that will be resolved. Paul says it like this in Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly. For those who are in Christ, he says we, we see, we see the glory of God, but it's dim. But then on that day, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This is the hope of the glory of God. One day we will see him and we will be changed. It's pointing us forward. Today, through baptism, we're declaring that another person has this hope. 
the hope of glory, seen and received. And in this we rejoice. That's what he says. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is, church, a reason for joy. And I think, I hope, that for you, it makes sense to rejoice over this kind of thing. Whether you fully get it or not, we should have joy in knowing one day there's glory. But I wonder if this next verse makes sense to you. Verse 3. Not only that, not only rejoicing in the hope of glory, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's harder. It's one thing to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's another thing to rejoice in suffering. But notice what Paul's doing. He's including this in the list of benefits of justification. Here's one of the benefits of being in Christ. You can trust that your suffering is not without purpose. Look at the, look at the verse. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why does Paul say that we can rejoice in suffering? Sounds odd. We can rejoice in suffering, not because the suffering is pleasant, but because it is purposeful. And that's what the Bible tells us over and over again, that God has a purpose for you, and your suffering isn't something outside of that purpose. It's included. Did you notice this word he says there in verse 3? Knowing that our suffering produces endurance. It's confidence. I, I know this is true. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance, perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. It's an incredible incredible progression. And because there's seven of these, we're not going to, we can't dive into this progression, but the big idea here is this. God has told us that he will use the suffering of his people to do his work in us, to move us towards hope. So it's not wasted. It's not useless. And while that doesn't make the suffering easy, it does enable us to go through it with a sense of joy. I can rejoice even in my suffering knowing that God is using it to produce in me a, a greater recognition of hope and hope doesn't put me to shame. Through our suffering, he can increase our confidence in him and with increased confidence in him, we have increased joy. Even if the circumstance hasn't changed. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The good defined here in that context is God taking his people and moving us progressively into greater relationship with him. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Every situation, every suffering is by God's design for his people. It's one of the joys of justification. We can know that our suffering is not without purpose, and we can even, Paul says, rejoice in knowing that truth. 
It's quite a list. And these things are true of you if you are in Christ. Peace with God. Standing in grace. Hope of the glory of God. Joy and suffering. And fifth, it's going pretty quick, isn't it? Fifth, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit who communicates the love of God to us. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me try to unpack this somewhat quickly. In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about the hope we have, this certain hope. And the reason we can have this confident hope, the reason we're not put to shame is because something has been given to us. Paul says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's given to us. It's descriptive language. Think of something being poured. Think of a pitcher of water being poured into a glass. His love has been poured into you, not on you, but into you, into your heart. It's not something that happens outside of us. It's happened to ha- it happens within us and to us. When we come to God through faith in Christ, the love of God is poured into our hearts. It's one thing to know in our minds the love of God. It's another thing to, to receive the love of God being poured into our hearts. And he says it comes to us through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. This is what we believe, that when we come to faith, God sends his spirit himself to take up residence in our hearts and that he comes to us as the embodiment of the love of God. He's within us. Just to stay in Romans, to go to Romans 8 again, Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What's he saying? If you're in Christ, this has happened to you, that God has poured out his love by sending his spirit to live in you. And that spirit's now doing his work in your heart to convict you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to teach you, to show you the love of Christ. It's one of the gifts of justification. The Spirit of God lives within us, communicating the love of God to us. This could have been seven sermons. I should tell you, that's huge. The gift of the Spirit of God. Not only peace with God and standing in grace and hope of the glory of God and joy and suffering and the gift of the communication of the love of God through the Spirit, but six, we can know that we're delivered from the future wrath of God. Verse nine, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come. And this is kind of the, Same thing said differently as the first. We had peace with God. Because we have peace with God, we're no longer under the wrath of God. But now he tells us explicitly. He doesn't just imply it at the front end. He says it clearly at the end. You're saved from the wrath of God. Which is good news because back in chapter 1, he told us that we were under the wrath of God. 
And so now to hear this, we have to read it and reread it and say, yes, this is true of me, saved from wrath. And I noted on your notes that this is the future wrath of God, this reality that a day is coming when God will pour out his wrath on all those who have not believed. So we see this contrast. For those who don't know Christ on that day, they will face the wrath of God. But for those who do believe, we have the hope of the glory of God. And the reason we have that hope is because we're saved from the wrath through the blood of Christ. And you may be thinking at this point, what did Stephen say last week? Pretty standard gospel stuff, right? Things that many of you have known and believed. But what I'm calling myself and you to this morning is to feel the weight of these things. That we were once deserving of wrath and now we are saved from wrath. Because we've been justified by faith, we can confess. And if you've been baptized, this is the confession you made. It's the confession that Philip makes as he's baptized. I have peace with God. I stand in grace. I have the hope of the glory of God. I can rejoice in suffering. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. I have been saved from the wrath of God. And because of all that, this can be true. We rejoice in God. Verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This could have been a three-point sermon probably. Maybe next time. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in God. And for you, that may seem like a normal or natural thing to say, rejoicing in God. But it's impossible apart from Christ. Without Christ, we're at enmity with God. And seeing God for who he is apart from Christ, nothing joyful about that. But through Christ, as we recognize all that is now true of us, there's joy. It's a response we hear a lot in the Psalms. I'll give you one example, Psalm 13, 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If you're in Christ, this should produce joy in God. And that joy in God should change the way you approach the different parts of life. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And then he, he says this. Out of that position of joy before God, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what it looks like to rejoice in God. Trusting him, casting our cares on him. It comes with that inner peace that we referred to earlier. We have a lot to celebrate, not only with our brother being baptized, but 
as we consider the work that God has done in each one of us. And my hope is that you, as you hear and think about these things, they seem almost too good to be true. And yet, let me be the, the one who gets to tell you the good news. If you're in Christ, they're true. But how could this be true? How could all these things be true of us? We've talked about the benefits of justification. Let's end by considering the, the means. How was this? How is this accomplished? How can we be made right before God? Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why can we have this hope? I'll give you a twofold reason. The love of God, which compelled him to send his son to die for us. It's because of God's love and the coming of Christ that sinners can be justified, reconciled, brought into peace. Consider the love of God, friends. Think about how fickle you can be with your love. We tend to love those who are lovely, those who love us. We love those who bring us happiness. But God loved us when we were unloving, in fact, he loved us when we hated him, when we were his enemies. And he loved us at the cost of his son. We could ask the question, who would we give our lives for? This is the question that Paul's pushing us to ask. Who would you be willing to die for? Who do you love so much that you would give your life for them? Do you see the comparison he makes there in verse 7? He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we could go around the room and probably all give examples of people we know who have given their life for others. Some in service to their country. Some in protection of a family member. Others maybe even in protection of a stranger. But in all those cases, people are laying down their lives because they perceive some value in the life of the one for whom they're dying. And even these cases are rare. It's rare for someone to die for another person, righteous or not. But Paul wants us to consider this, that Jesus willingly died for us when we were wretched. There was no good in us, no righteousness in us. And this is the measure of God's love. He showed his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. John says it this way. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we could live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. We didn't deserve this. 
Did you notice the ways we're described in Romans 5, 1 to 11? Four, four ways we're described. Weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That's before Christ. There was nothing in us that deserved what we have received. It's a gift that comes to all those who receive it by faith. When you do your homework this afternoon, you'll read this in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, saying this, you can't do enough good. Okay? But the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's a lot of theology, but, but get this. It's a gift received by faith. It's not automatic. And friend, if you're here thinking, that's great. I want to know that I'm at peace with God. I want to know that I stand in grace. I want to know that I have the hope of the glory of God. I want to know I can rejoice in my suffering. I, I want to know that I've been saved from the wrath of God. We're told that we receive this gift by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're celebrating that Philip has received this gift. God set his love on him, opened his eyes, and he responded in faith. He's now counted among the justified, the reconciled, set free to rejoice in God. If you're here this morning, you don't know if these things are true of you. Would you talk to me or to someone else? For those of you who are here and are among the justified, I pray that you would leave more equipped to rejoice in God and that it would change the way you live and change the way you suffer and lead you to greater effectiveness for the sake of Christ. These are realities that should never cease to amaze us.